Hi, everybody. I'm Peter Travers, and this is Popcorn, where we tell you what's happening at the movies. And there's a movie now that I think is, well, I know it's the best movie I've seen this year so far. And it's called Dunkirk. It's directed by Christopher Nolan, my guest today, in a way that might be surprising for some of his admirers because it's a little different. It's history. But why should I talk about it when you're here, Chris? You're here. And it is. It is for you who people know a lot for the Dark Knight Mm -hmm. trilogy, for Inceptions and Interstellars. This is history. This is Yeah, this is real. Uh, No, I've sort of been realizing, I've spent a lot of time talking about projects I've done in science fiction, the science fiction world or an element of fantasy, what I'm talking about, how we've tried to make them grounded and real. And so we talk about reality a lot. And of course, with this film, I suddenly turned around and realized, actually, it's the first time I really dealt with something real. Certainly the first time I dealt with something based on, on uh, real history. And, and that, it changes your creative process, I think, but in an exciting way, because I'm used to having to create a whole fictional world and then figure out the point of view through it. Yeah. And with Dunkirk, it already exists. The world of it is real and exists and just needs researching and discovering. And It's in the history books. Uh, it's in the history books. Mm. And it's most importantly for me, it's in a lot of the first-hand accounts that have been collected by, by people who were there. Um, and then I actually had the privilege of sitting down with some of the veterans who are still remaining who were there and hearing their stories directly, um, a lot of which worked its way into the film. And so in that way, you know, I built up my understanding of, of the world that the movie was taking on and then was free to sort of create my fictional characters and figure out my path through those events. Nobody in this movie sits down and says, and here's what happened, and my yeah. mother was cruel to me, and yeah. uh, <laughs> this is why I'm acting out. There's yeah. none of that. Yeah. You are the screenwriter alone. Your brother Jonathan wasn't working with you on this one. He did it. No, and yet there's, there has to be, if there's two pages of dialogue yeah. in the whole movie, that's kind of amazing. Yeah. There's a, we're watching what's happening and coming up with what we think by watching, not hearing. Well, it's, it's show, not tell. Um, I'm a great fan of the silence, the great mm-hmm. silence, von Stroheim, Murnau particularly. I also, you know, in combination with that, I decided that the way I wanted to tell this film, the tension I wanted from this story was that of suspense because Dunkirk is a great ticking clock story. That's what distinguishes it from just being about a battle or a regular warfare. We even hear that clock in the Hans Zimmer score. Yeah, pretty pretty literal about it. Exactly. It is a ticking clock movie in every sense and it's about the 400,000 men on this beach and the enemy are closing in on all sides and they were faced between this choice of surrender or annihilation and it's, you know, is there a way, is there a third way And, and the way in which that happens is what I think makes it one of the greatest sort of stories of all time. So for me, it was all about suspense. And suspense is a primarily visual language. That's why for me, Alfred Hitchcock, Clouseau, you know, these are the greats, the great cine, you know, creators of cinema, mm-hmm. pure cinema. Um, because whilst there's obviously plenty of dialogue in most Hitchcock films, uh, it's really the visual signifiers of suspense that he knew how to do so well and that I've tried to draw from for this film. And so you want a lack of dialogue. You also, and I was sort of hinting at this with my, my earlier comments, but as British people know, Dunkirk is freighted with emotion. You know, the way in which the story turns out is inherently so emotional. The last thing I felt it needed was sentimentality, mm-hmm. you know, 
theatrics, the theatrics of that. Mm -hmm. And so I thought about, yeah, when you talk to people who are actually there and they're telling you their experiences, it's not about backstory. It's about in the moment. It's about meeting people right then, there, pulling together in the moment. It's about physicality. Uh, it's about literally the physics that we're facing, the water, the sand on the beach, getting from A to B. Can they find a way off this beach alive? What made you want to tell that story, though? What, what was it, the motivator that yeah. said, because I know you've been thinking about this for a while. Yeah, well, I mean, like most British people, I, I did grow up with the story. I don't even remember the first time I was told it. Mm -hmm. But you learn it in a sort of simplified, kind of a mythical, almost a fairy tale telling, whereby, you know, every sort of fisherman jumps in his boat, crosses the channel and pulls a soldier or two off and brings them back. Um, what happened was... Emma Thomas, my wife and producer, and myself, mm -hmm. we uh, helped a friend sail his small sailboat about 20 years ago across the channel to Dunkirk. We made the crossing that the civilians made uh, at about the same time of year. And we sort of did it more or less on a whim. And it turned out to be just ridiculously challenging. <laughs> it was an appalling experience. It took way longer than it should have. We were out there for about 19 hours making that crossing in very, very rough Mm -hmm. seas. The channel was extremely rough and it actually felt at times life-threatening. It felt dangerous. It was not a particularly experienced sailor on open water. Um, it felt very dangerous and that was without people dropping bombs on us. You know, yeah. there were no U-boats around. You're we just weren't sailing. heading into water. Yeah. We're just sailing. We're just having fun. And so I came away from that experience with a very different respect for the people who actually did that. It's unthinkably brave what they did. They got on their boats they headed into a war zone across that stretch of water. And the, the sort of physicality, it comes back to the physics things, but the physicality, the logistics, the sort of what would have been like to actually be there was very cemented for me in that, in that trip. And I think that was really the beginning of the notion of, well, if I ever had the chance, maybe one day, you know, try and express that in film. You know, what would it have been like to be there? Mm -hmm. Not just the history of it, not the, the politics of it, but the experience of it. There's two areas that I find very distinctive in this movie about the kind of filmmaker you are. Uh, one of them is the way you deal with time in it. You know, maybe I go back to Memento, which mm -hmm. was um, a really playing a game with it, but a game mm -hmm. that made us all play the game while we were watching it. Yeah. But here, because Dunkirk is so much land, sea, and air, mm -hmm. it's what's going on. We have uh, the, the Germans surrounding them and are they going to die at any minute? And yet we're, I think you spend a week, you know, in the time yeah. frame of the movie with the young soldiers on the beach and mm -hmm. how, when are they going to get off? Can they get off? Because you can't get big ships in that harbor. You can't, yeah. they can't do it. So it's those small boats run by civilians that have to do it. And then we're basically on those boats of those civilians with Mark Rylance's mm -hmm. character who's coming in with his son, trying to pick up any survivors he can to mm. do it. And then for an hour, we're up in the plane with Tom Hardy in the Spitfire, where yeah. he's covering the beach and doing it. And nothing runs in a linear way. Yeah. It's basically, you're jumping back and forth in time while that's happening. Yeah, with the, those storylines, as you say, there are three storylines, broadly speaking, land, mm -hmm. sea, and air. Yeah. One is a week, one is a day, one is an hour. Yeah. and. The, we sort of braid them together in a particular way. And really the, the purpose of that structure was always, to me structure always comes about as a result of trying to answer 
the issue of point of view. So Memento is a film told backwards because mm -hmm. I want to give the audience the experience of someone who couldn't remember what had just happened. So we invert the chronology and put mm -hmm. the audience in that place. This structure um, similarly came about as a result of saying, okay, I want to stay in the human scale for the entire film. I want to know just what they would have known. I want to see what they just would have seen, the people who were involved in the events. I don't want to cut out to politicians or to generals in rooms with big maps and mm -hmm. symbols of forces they're pushing around. It was a movie about war without the map falling. <laughs> without <laughs> the really, map it's, exactly. it always falls. Yeah. Somebody with a pointer is always yeah. saying, and then. Exactly, and, and telling the audience things that the characters can't know. But the story of Dunkirk is a very, very big story. And so I needed to find a way to build up a set of subjective experiences that as they cross-cut, they would give the audience a better understanding of the whole. So they would be gaining some understanding of the bigger issues. And so by viewing it from land, from sea, from air, the same events from different points of view, um, it started to build up a bigger picture of the movements of the evacuation, which are, of course, what is so amazing about the story. But hopefully never stepping outside this intensely subjective viewing that I wanted. I wanted the whole film. That's the reason it's a much shorter film than my usual films. My films have been. Because 106 minutes. Yeah. For like sure. a short for you. It's pretty short. <laughs> yeah. It was a 76-page script, which is, you know, about half what I usually do. And it was, you know, very much because we wanted a level of suspense and intensity that you could only sustain for so long. And we never wanted to step outside that. So the camera is always reflecting that. So we're running along the beach with those guys or we're on the decks of the boat and we just went out there with the actors and a very small crew on the deck of a small boat, you know, Hoyte van Hoyte, my DP, with a handheld IMAX camera, you know, braving the waves, that kind of thing. And then we managed to get those cameras uh, into the cockpit of a Spitfire and, and just keep the camera those right there. Those are heavy little suckers, aren't they? Yeah, heavy <laughs> big suckers. They're <laughs> massive, yeah. How much do they weigh? They weigh about almost 60 pounds with everything wow. on them. And uh, we've been working with them for some years, and Interstellar was the first time when we really broke the kind of handheld barrier. Mm -hmm. And we did it, I did it basically by hiring this very strong Dutch DP who, I told him, oh, there's no way to handhold this. And so he put handles on it and just put it on his shoulder. Yeah, so you were um, daring him. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I genuinely wasn't daring him. I thought it was impossible. <laughs> and we've been working for years with these cameras, believing it to be impossible. I think we had never, we tried engineering solutions to how to handhold mm -hmm. it. And I think we'd never really just sort of thought, well, what if you just sort of suck it up and, you know, and, and actually what Hoyt did develop is, you know, there's a very good uh, dolly grip we've worked with for many years called Ryan Monroe, who he started to work because what the dolly grip does in handheld cameras, he'll put the camera on the camera hand's shoulder and then generally sort of leave it and just mm -hmm. mind it, you know, as the shot's going on. What he started doing is keeping his hands on there and balancing the weight for him. And kind of so the two of them would sort of dance around in this peculiar way and in that way take the weight. But that let us shoot the film in the very earthy, subjective, you know, way that we wanted and, and, and spontaneous as well, which for a filmmaker, for directors, it's a gift to be able to be spontaneous with such an elegant and, and large format, but still be able to just, you know, bring the camera around to just where you want it to be and follow somebody. Not only with the cameras, but the other thing that's so you is basically you didn't create this movie on your laptop or your smartphone. No. Uh, this isn't a computer. You're, you're there yeah. on location. Yeah. We were Shootings. there, on, not just on location, but in the real spot, you know, on the mm -hmm. real beach at Dunkirk. Um, 
And then we had real boats. We had um, some of the real little ships who had made the trip in 1940. They came back. Uh, we had a couple of days of shooting the evacuation where these boats recreated their journey for us. They came over from England and recreated the journey for our cameras. And we did that on the 76th anniversary in the real place. It was, it was, a, very, it was a very moving thing. Um, and then for the aerial stuff, we were determined to shoot dogfights in a way that we'd never seen before, um, just by getting the real planes, you know, real Spitfires and Messerschmitts, mm -hmm. and figuring out how to get that camera up there, how to get the actor up there, and uh, should have showed the audience, involved the audience in the mechanics of a, of a dogfight, mm -hmm. and how, frankly, how difficult it, it is. So my stunt coordinator, Tom Struthers, he, he was an aviation enthusiast, very early on, he came to me with this amazing suggestion of getting hold of this Soviet-era plane called a Yak. It was built in Romania. And it's about the same size and shape as a Spitfire. So we could sort of convert it to look like a Spitfire, more or less. But it has two cockpits. And we could drill into the wings. We owned it, so and it wasn't an antique. It wasn't of mm -hmm. any value. So we could create lens mounts, have the pilot fly in the back, and have a Spitfire cockpit with the actor in, actually go up and fly with the real Spitfires and dogfights. So the pilot's in the back, Tom Hardy's up, mm -hmm. you know, in focus, you know, as the person who's doing it. They could be either in the front or the back. What, we build I mean, it to swap it around. I've got to bring that up because every time you're with Tom Hardy, especially in the, in the Dark Knight Rises, you're covering his face. Is that a thing? That, um, <laughs> it's, we can barely see him. I, it is a thing, and George Miller did it to him as well in between he those did. films. So yes, I don't, yeah. yeah. Uh, I wonder if he's getting a complex about it. I, you know, <laughs> he had a good sense of humor about it. Uh, Killian Murphy, to be fair, when I called him, he did actually say to me, am I going to have to wear a bag over my head? Because I've done three <laughs> films with him where I basically put a sack That's on his right, head. That's right. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, four films actually where I put a sack over his head. So, <laughs> the, um, the, the thing with Tom, though, is I was so thrilled with what he did for me and for the film on, on Dark Knight Rises, acting with just, you know, we'd had a lot of discussions about how much of the face would be revealed, <laughs> so what would he have to work with? Um, so when we came to do this Spitfire pilot, and I looked back at the old films, and I looked at the research, and we talked to Spitfire pilots and everything, and this idea that every time they would talk, they would kind of pull their mask off and, you know, whatever, it's complete nonsense. I mean, they, they put this thing on, the microphone is in the mask, mm -hmm. and there's a button on the throttle to, to speak. I mean, you don't take it off. Yeah. And so we're like, okay, you've got goggles, you've got this, you've got that. <laughs> yeah. So what actor, you know, what actor do I know who can convey really meaningful emotion and, and, and difficulty and, and dilemma with, I mean, I think one of his most interesting moments in the film is one eye that you can see. You can, it's just yeah. like this bit. <laughs> and Tom can do that. And he's just, just a remarkable performer. We'll talk a little about the actors in this movie. Uh, Finn Whitehead, who is the yeah. newcomer to this, and is Tommy, is this everyman soldier. Yeah. You have a lot of, you even have Harry Styles. This is mm -hmm. an interesting concept because here's this yeah. pop idol, you know, who people would line up to see, and he's making his debut in a movie that, in a, where the part isn't huge. Yeah. What, what's your theory of casting him as opposed to actors that the audience doesn't know? Well, I think, for me, what was most important was that those guys on the beach be fresh faces, mm -hmm. fresh to movies, be people without particular association, and people whose experience of making the film would mirror 
the Caracas to some degree. That feeling of being in at the deep end. And also that feeling that you get. I was thinking of like when Ridley Scott did his first Alien movie mm -hmm. and Sigourney Weaver wasn't Sigourney Weaver. Mm -hmm. Like audiences in 1979, they had no idea who was going to survive that movie. And that, you know, obviously over time that gets lost because Sigourney became the big star that she is uh, through that film. But I wanted to have a face in the, in the heart of things, Finn Whitehead's character, where you've never seen this guy before and you, he's a kid, he's 18. The age being a key factor, you know, Hollywood movies so often it's a 30-year-old playing a 19-year-old. Mm -hmm. And when we're dealing with real-life events, we're dealing with war, we're addressing how it is that we fight these wars and we send children to go and do this. Mm -hmm. We send 18, 19, 20-year-olds, guys just starting out in life. And I wanted to cast people of that age. And that means open casting calls. That means a very old-fashioned Hollywood process of people who don't even have agents yet, people in drama schools, um, you know, Tom Glenn Carney, who plays Mark Rylance's son, he dropped out of drama school to come and do the film. You know, uh, that's how how fresh these guys are. Uh, and at some point, um, Harry uh, submitted himself to our casting director and went on tape, did an audition. That was so he wanted to be a part of it. Yeah, yeah, he did. Did he and, have his uh, own reasons for it? Was uh, there something in his family about... Uh, not specific, I, not specific to Dunkirk particularly. I mean, I, I never really asked him, mm -hmm. to be honest. I was just kind of pleased. You get Harry on the phone. Yeah. We'll see what happens. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, he, you know, he went on tape. It was great. And we were doing this big set of auditions where we sort of workshopped the scenes and mixed and mm -hmm. matched different guys and tried to winnow it down. And he came along for that process. And, and over a you know, course of days and days, he, he earned his seat at the table and fit something. You know, I'd been able to find... Finn to play Tommy, I've been able to find you know, Peter, I've been able to find Barry to come on, play George, but I couldn't find Alex. And um, I think it's one of the most, it's, it's a small part, mm -hmm. and we try not to oversell it, obviously, or trade on you know, Harry stardom too much, but um, I think it's one of the more important parts in the film, because I think, and he does it absolutely beautifully, it's subtle and it's restrained, it's not showboating, it's not, you know, it's very human. But it's about human frailty, and it's a sort of, it's a, it's kind of a pivot point for the movie for me, you know, in terms of putting our cards on the table about what what are we really trying to address here about human nature, about how people react to that survival impulse. Because ultimately, the film, for me, is not a war film as much as it is a survival story. Mm -hmm. That's how I've approached it. This is your tenth feature. Yes. To me, shockingly, you've never been nominated as Best Director. Does that kind of thing bother you? Uh, no, I mean, I've been working in a pretty commercial end of things. You know, yeah. I, I've been making movies for audiences, you know, and so I, I'm always, you know, people often ask me about that sort of stuff, and it's like, you know, it, it'd be thrilling to be nominated for an Oscar as a mm -hmm. director. I mean, obviously, I've grown up watching the Oscars, and I'm a member of the Academy, proudly, mm -hmm. and I have been nominated for writing, which mm -hmm. I was very, very proud of. Uh, but uh, at the end of the day, for me, the movies were all about the audience. And with these films I've been making, they're about reaching a wide audience, um, really speaking to a lot of people. And so that's really the, the, guiding, the guiding principle for me. And if that's not necessarily um, you know, what speaks to you know, Oscar voters or the rest, it's not something you can worry about. you just got to get on and do the film that you believe in. Well, yeah, I can't just picture you at home saying, well, will this be the one? You know? <laughs> no. Of course, it will be the one. But still, to think about that and to have that 
I mean, I'm just interested in what growing, because you didn't go to film mm -hmm. school. You, this no, isn't what you did. No, I couldn't did. get in. Couldn't get in. They looked at your early work and said, so, no, this guy has no, no future. Exactly. No, this exactly. is all over. So were you watching other movies too? I've always watched movies. I mean, I've always been a student of films. Um, and I think it was Stanley Kubrick who basically said, if you want to learn how to make a film, just make a film. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of my approach. I started making films when I was seven years old on Super 8, you know, and I, I never really stopped. Um, and then my first feature uh, following, you know, was made on 16 mil with friends who just did it on the weekends and put it together. Pretty cheap. Very cheap. I mean, uh, yeah, all told about $6,000. <laughs> so yeah, that, very, very cheap. <clears throat> what were those movies that, that had an impact on you growing up? Well, I mean, if you're talking about raw sort of cinematic impact, yeah. you know, I always have to talk about George Lucas's first Star Wars. Mm -hmm. I was seven years old when it came out. Anybody my age, that's a seminal film. It's, it's just the, the film that shows you the possibilities of cinema. Um, that, the success of that was followed uh, about a year later by a re-release of Kubrick's 2001. Mm -hmm. My dad took me to see that on a huge screen in Leicester Square in London when I was seven years old still, I think, almost eight. And that made an incredible impression on me as well. Just that feeling of how the screen can just be a portal to another dimension. I mean, just be this, this whole other, other world or set of worlds. Well, I have to say goodbye to you. You've done this show before and it didn't work out, but we always end in song. And now, this is a big deal for me because Christian Bale has said to me, and he put 50 of his hard-earned dollars up it. And he said, if you can even get Chris Nolan to hum, um, you have my 50. It's yours. So just out of respect and for my $50 being taken from Christian Bale, is there part of Hans Zimmer's scores that he's done for you since you started making movies practically uh, that you can give me of a theme that were in the movies without singing an actual song? I'm sure you serenaded your four I, children. Well, you know, to be honest, <laughs> I wouldn't do that to Christian. He needs to keep his 50. Oh. But I, I can play the ticking on my watch that can you? Can at the we? heart of uh, let's just pause home. and we'll do it. You in need post. a very big, you yes. need a very exactly. Yes. Can we we'll actually pretend hear that's it? the watch? It actually was a pocket watch that, that I recorded and I gave. <laughs> I gave hands a recording and said, "Really, all that's the tracks it." Out of that, yeah, 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 yeah. And you think Christian needs his fifty? Yeah. You know, well, really. Yeah. I'm not going to do that really? to a friend. Okay, Chris. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.